Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing our series today, His Story, God's Story, uh, Lessons from the Old Testament. We're looking at how God has interacted with us throughout history. And today I've entitled our message, uh, Surrender. Archbishop Francis George said this, faith is not a contract. Faith is surrender. Because when we surrender to God, it shows that we believe in him and we trust him. And God wants surrender in our lives. If we say we follow Jesus, we must be obeying him, we must be surrendering to him. In fact, Jesus said, if you love me, how did he end that? If you love me, sing praise songs to me or say nice things about me. No, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. When we obey God, we're demonstrating we're surrendered to him. It's the way we show him We love him. John Ortberg writes, when it was time to take our first child home from the hospital, we put her in the car seat in the back of the car, and I got in the front seat to drive. She was so small, even the baby seat was way too big. She looked so fragile to me that I drove home on that freeway going about 35 miles an hour, or about 50 kilometers an hour, with the hazard lights flashing the whole time. That first day when our kid is in the car with you is a scary day. Does anyone want to know what the next really scary day is with your kid in a car? It's when they turn 16 or 15, and now you're handing over the keys. Now they're moving from the passenger seat, from the ride-along seat, into the driver's seat. That's a scary moment. It is a big moment in your life when you hand somebody else the keys. Up until now, I've been driving. I choose the destination. I choose the route. I choose the speed. You're in the driver or long seat. But if we're to change seats, if you're going to drive, I have to trust you. It's all about control. Whoever is in this seat is the person in control. A lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the ride-along seat because something may come up where they require his services. Jesus, I have a health problem and I need some help. I want you in the car but I'm not so sure I really want you driving. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my life anymore. If he's driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. It's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I no longer have the right to satisfy every self-centered ambition that I have. No, it's his agenda now. It's his life No, I'm not in charge of my mouth anymore. I don't get to gossip, flatter, cajole, deceive, rage, intimidate, manipulate, exaggerate. I get out of the driver's seat and hand the keys over to him. I'm fully engaged. In fact, I'm more alive than I've ever been before. But it's not my life anymore. It's his. That's what's intended to happen with every one of us over time who is a Christ follower. God wants this surrender, which reflects itself in obedience and trust in him. But surrender is not easy. It's certainly not natural for us. Yet without surrender, 
none of us are living the lives that we were intended to live. We really aren't living as we've been created to live in fellowship with God and in obedience to him. Listen to this example. I love this story. I think I've shared it here before. March 10th, 1974. March 10th, 1974. Lieutenant Harao Onada was the last World War II soldier to surrender. In 1974, World War II was over in 1945, Onada had been left on the island Lubang in the Philippines on Christmas, 1944, with the command to carry on the mission even if Japan surrenders. Four other Japanese soldiers were left on the island as Japan evacuated Lubang. One soldier surrendered in 1950. Another was killed in a skirmish with police in 1954. Another was killed in 1972. But Onada continued his war alone, and he's thinking he is obeying this command. All efforts to convince him to surrender or to capture failed. He ignored messages from loudspeakers announcing the surrender and that Japan was now an ally of the U.S., Leaflets were dropped over the jungle begging him to surrender so he could return to Japan. He refused to believe and he refused to surrender. Over the years, he lived off the land. He raided the fields and gardens of local citizens. He was responsible for killing at least 30 nationals during his 29-year personal war. Almost half a million dollars was spent trying to locate and convince him to surrender. 13,000 men and women were used to try to locate him. Finally, on March 10th, 1974, almost 30 years after World War II ended, Onada surrendered his rusty sword after receiving a personal command from his former superior officer who read the terms of the ceasefire order, showed up to read him the terms. Onada handed his sword to President Marcos, who pardoned him. The war was over. He was 22 years old when he was left on that island, Christmas, 1944. He returned a prematurely aged man of 52. Onada stated, nothing pleasant happened in the 29 years in the jungle. Surrender may not be easy. In fact, I think we can all say it isn't. But not surrendering, not surrendering, robs us of the lives that God intended for us. Japan surrendered in 1945 in Tokyo Bay. Harao kept fighting this private war for 29 years. Think of what he missed out on. He missed out on marriage. He missed out on children, family, friendships, life. Because he wasn't living for those 29 years. He was surviving. He was never living. God uses people best who believe in him and follow him and demonstrate the surrender in their lives. He uses us more when we're surrendered because surrender is going to be reflected in trust and obedience. So God, to get us in that place of surrender uses a variety of means as a sovereign God to get you, to get me to that place. And today we're going to look at how he did it in the life of Abraham. 
So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. This is a familiar story. Genesis chapter 22. It's on page 15 in the Bible in front of you. Page 15. Genesis chapter 22. Again, a very familiar story. The offering of Isaac. Kind of a tough story. If you don't come from a Christian background where you grew up with this in Sunday school, it's a little bit of a shocking story. We'll talk about why in a moment. Genesis chapter 22 on page 15. Now it came after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son. Isaac was just born in the prior chapter. We didn't preach about that. He was born in the prior chapter, chapter 21, and he's already grown up. So again, the scriptures often don't give us much history. They'll skip decades at a time to get to the next important thing we need to know. So Isaac has been born, he's been raised, and now God is saying, take your son, your only son, verse two, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son, And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now the place, by the way, is kind of where modern-day Jerusalem is, part of Jerusalem, we believe. And so he saw this place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham and father, his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad or do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Not the brightest ram, but nonetheless. Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. There's three points here. First, God tested Abraham in order to develop a trusting, surrendered follower. This is one of the great stories of the Old Testament, one of the great stories of the Bible, yet I I want to admit 
and it doesn't really occur to many of us who grow up with these stories because we kind of get inoculated to them. They don't really shock us. But to people outside of faith, this is a shocking story and actually is sort of a stumbling block for a lot of people. It sort of makes them have a hard time believing in the God of the Bible because it's such a shocking request. Some wonder if a good God would ever do such a thing or ask such a thing. Some suggest that this isn't really, you know, God's word. God never really did this, but this story is a reflection of the child sacrifice of the Canaanites in those cultures. Therefore, it's put in here, but it's not really God's word. I would say there's some, some middle ground here. I absolutely do believe this is God's word. But I do believe Moses is sensitive to the shock of this story, which is why Moses, when he compiles and edits the Pentateuch, as he is the author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as he's putting this together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he immediately lets us know this is a test. It's as if he's sort of trying to disarm us. He knows you're going to be a little shocked by this request. He's like, God's testing Abraham so that we kind of know that God's going to stop him. And I also think the fact that, believe it or not, child sacrifice did exist in Canaanite cultures, it opened the door for this kind of a test to seem realistic to somebody in an ancient culture. So I believe that was the request. Now there's a reason for this strange request. For decades, God had been setting up Isaac, this boy, as the way that God would fulfill his promise to Abraham. So back in chapter 12, when Abraham is quite a bit younger, let's assume 40 or 50 years younger, uh, God tells Abraham that he's going to make of him a great nation and that he's going to be, through that nation, a blessing to all nations on earth. Now eventually God starts clarifying that a little more. And he says that you're going to have a son and that son is going to become the nation. So you'll have a physical son. That son will become the nation. We know that nation's going to be Israel. Israel was to be a light to the rest of the world. God was going to bless a nation supernaturally so that as they observed his supernatural blessing, the peoples of the world would recognize, oh, there is a true God in heaven and it's the God of Israel. That was the plan. Unfortunately, Israel had to obey God to get that blessing, and there were times where they did not, and so the blessing was removed. But they were to be a light, and ultimately through this nation would also come a savior for humanity, this God-man that we know as Jesus. So God has clarified much of this, and much of Abraham's journey from chapter 12 until chapter 22 has been basically believing these promises because he has struggled to believe them. Sarah, his wife, was infertile. So, God, so Abraham is assuming, okay, my wife doesn't seem to be able to produce this child for me, so he assumed he's going to become a nation through his servant Eliezer, which would have been culturally possible. He, and Abraham and Sarah thought, well, if it's not going to be Eliezer, because God confirmed it was going to be, maybe it would be through Sarah's handmaid. So Sarah had this basically a slave from Egypt, and legally, she reasons, if Abraham sleeps with my slave and she has a son, because she's my slave, it's my son. And so she goes through these mental gymnastics to say, this is how God is going to fulfill this promise. And so she offers Abraham her servant girl. Abraham doesn't blink, sleeps with Hagar. They have Ishmael. And God said to them, no, this, this was not the plan. This was not the plan. This is not a child of faith. It's going to be a child through Sarah, God clarifies. 
And God tries to make this promise absolutely idiot-proof. Abraham, your wife, one year from now, is going to have a baby boy. That's in chapter 18. This time, next year, Sarah's going to be a nursing mom of your son through Sarah. That was chapter 18. Chapter 21, Isaac is born. Name means laughter because Sarah kind of laughed when she heard the angels telling Abraham he was going to have a son next year. She's like, yeah, right. She was postmenopausal. She had a right to laugh. So they named Isaac Laughter. After Isaac is born, in the chapter I didn't preach on, the last chapter, Ishmael, this teenager now, I believe, starts mocking Isaac. So he's not the son of promise. He's the son through Hagar, the servant girl. And he starts making fun of Isaac. And Sarah says, Abraham, you've got to do something about this. These two boys aren't going to do well together. And I'm not going to do well with this. So Isaac is basically expelled from, or I should say Ishmael is expelled from the clan. And God says, after this mocking, he says, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Sarah said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. He loved Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he's your descendant. In other words, I'm going to bless Ishmael it wasn't the right thing to do and it wasn't a good idea, but because I'm blessing you, I'm going to bless Ishmael, but he does need to leave the clan. Isaac is the future. Isaac is the plan. So we get to chapter 22 where we read this passage. And some say this could be 25 years later than chapter 21. I want you to think about that. When we think of this story and you're in Sunday school and Abraham takes his little son Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice him, what do you think of? Six to eight-year-old little boy, you know, and he's walking up with daddy. No. Josephus, a famous Jewish historian, says that Isaac is 25 at this point. He's a man. Now, we don't have real clarity on this. But he did carry the wood for the sacrifice up a mountain. That's not a six to eight-year-old boy. He's at least probably a mid-teenager. I assume a healthy, adolescent teenager, at minimum, who is a wrestling star at his local high school. All right? That's what we're dealing with here. In other words, he can take Abraham in a heartbeat if he wants to. And he's cooperative in this process. Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. This command was 40 or 50 years in the making from the first time we hear of Abraham. Decades of promises, decades of doubting God's promises, then decades of waiting, moments of unbelief, now perhaps a 15 to 25 year span of raising the dream child, Isaac, that God finally gave. Finally, everything's in place. 
sort of the golden boy is here. He's the future of salvation history. He's going to become a nation. That nation will produce the Savior. And then God asks Abraham to surrender it all, to trust him in a way that you and I cannot imagine, and we kind of wish this story wasn't here because it's really hard to explain it to other people. God asked Abraham to sacrifice that boy. Second, Abraham obeyed, trusting God's word and his original promise. Now what I mean by this is he's trusting God now and he's also trusting that what God had said before was true, which was a real problem. Abraham has this new word from God. I want you to sacrifice this boy that I've been talking to you about for 50 years. And also, Abraham has decades of God's promises about this dream child, Isaac, and his destiny. So Abraham is sitting there, and he's like, both things are true. He knew that God had said, Isaac will become a nation that will be a blessing to the world and that will produce a savior. He also knows God just said, sacrifice Isaac. Both are true but they are mentally incompatible with each other. How can God give me a son who's going to become a nation, who's going to be a blessing to the world and give us a savior, and then tell me to sacrifice him? How can both be true? And he has three days to agonize this about this on the way to Mount Moriah. Now again, Mount Moriah, sort of present-day Jerusalem area, some say where this sacrifice took place would have been basically close to where Jesus is crucified. There's sort of some interesting typology here. So how does Abraham deal with these two words from God? I'm going to make of Isaac a great nation. He's going to bless the world. Sacrifice Isaac. So there's this clue later on, actually more than a thousand years later, when the writer of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, we're not sure exactly who that was, gives us insight into Abraham's thinking. So he's got three days to walk because this is a 20-plus hour journey from Beersheba to Mount Moriah area. So he's got a couple of days, three days, before he arrives according to the scriptures. And this is what's going through his mind as he's trying to make sense of God's word. By faith, this is in the faith chapter, the heroes of faith, where uh, the writer of Hebrews sort of visits all kinds of historic people and talks about their faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, this chapter, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. If he was to whom, uh, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered, so here's how he made it work in his head, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. So Abraham is coming to this mountain, trying to figure out, okay, God said this, but God also said this. It doesn't seem like they're compatible. And in his mind, by the time he gets up to the top of that mountain, here's what he had concluded. I'm going to obey God. He told me this. He told me this. They do not make sense together. They seem incompatible. But I'm at a point now where I've seen God do unbelievable things. I doubted the birth of this son for decades, and then God gave me this son. I'm going to finally believe God for the first time. I'm going to trust him and do whatever he says. And he said, I'm assuming God's going to raise him from the dead. 
because he gave his word about what this boy would become. Abraham believed Isaac would die and then experience resurrection moments later. That's pretty gutsy. That's pretty gutsy. You don't want to be wrong about this one. Finally, Abraham had seen enough of God keeping his word. Finally, he's ready to just do what he's told as a follower of God. So the next day, he got up early. Two young men accompanied them. He split wood for the fire, for the burnt offering. He began this roughly 20-plus hour trip, 20-plus hours if you're walking or with donkeys or camels, north, and a million thoughts are going through his mind. When they arrived, they left the two young men at the bottom of the mountain. Isaac carried the wood. Moses, I got Moses. I don't know how Moses got in here, but he got my notes. Moses evidently carried a knife and fire. That'll change some Sunday school stories. Moses, in a pre-Moses appearance, Abraham carried the knife and fire, some coals they had kept alive. Isaac asks the obvious question as they're going up the mountain. Where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham, really not knowing what to say because there's no way he wants to explain this to his son, although you know, we're given just basic details here. He probably does explain it to his son. This is what I'm thinking. God said this, God said this, but he doesn't tell him yet. He says, God will provide, God will provide a sacrifice. Abraham built an altar. I'm imagining that was slow, very slowly. You know, I had to find the perfect rocks to build that altar because he wanted to put this off as long as possible. And then there had to be a conversation that God has not given us. Abraham bound his son, who carried the wood, who I'm sure can take old dad anytime he wants to. I had a son who was a wrestler in high school, and since he was 14 or 15, even if I outweighed him by about 100 pounds, he could inflict pain like no other human could. And it's always fun when you're doing it to your father. I'm sure Isaac could take Abraham. And Abraham must have explained to him what's going on here. And he bound his son, a willing Isaac, and he raised the knife, and he's ready to put it into his son's chest. And then heaven spoke. The angel said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham, I'm sure, is a little relieved. Here I am, right here. Waiting for further instructions. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, him behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. Abraham went and took the ram offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. Third, after that moment of obedience, God reaffirmed his blessing on faithful, surrendered Abraham. So the angel comes again a second time, it says to Abraham, verses 16 to 19, he says, 
I might by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, this is the angel of the Lord. So what's interesting about this is many people believe when you have the definite article, the angel of the Lord, not an angel of the Lord, that it can be a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. So some would say this is actually Jesus before he comes to earth in baby form. Some would say this is Jesus, the angel of the Lord as opposed to an angel of the Lord. We're not sure about that. It's debatable. But he does identify himself as God here, not just necessarily representing God, but it seems like he could be God, the angel of the Lord. I myself have sworn, uh, I, by myself I have sworn, in other words, I'm swearing by my character, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, I'll greatly bless you, I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, sand which is on the seashore, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, in your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you obeyed my voice. Now, I, I want to correct what might be a little misnomer here, and I could be wrong about this, but this doesn't make total sense to me if this still is conditional. Let me explain. God's already made these promises to Abraham about what his seed is going to be, that they're going to be a nation and so on. So I don't believe these promises are at risk, really. They hadn't changed. They weren't dependent upon this moment. But having said that, Abraham needed to change. Up until now, what have we been talking about for the last few weeks? Abraham needs to change. Now God has a trusting, surrendered, obedient Abraham. And up until now, we've had sort of a manipulative, dishonest, you know, untrusting guy who is running around lying and doing things that we really don't approve of, and yet he's going to be the father of faith. Abraham has a special place in salvation history, and God has to get him to a point in his character where he can use him greatly. Now, you and I are not Abraham, you know, but God hasn't changed. And he wants the same thing in us that he wanted in Abraham. Trust, surrender, that leads to obedience. So what does that look like? We're going to look at some surrender apps or applications. First, God is invested in our surrender and maturity. God tested Abraham. It's very clear. And that's what the Bible says, Genesis 22. God initiated this. God tested Abraham. It's quoted that way in Hebrews uh, that we read as well, Hebrews 11. Why did God test Abraham? God was clearly interested in a better Abraham. We have seen an untrusting and dishonest Abraham for decades. This is a guy who failed to believe God's promise of a son through Sarah for decades. He can't believe this. And also, whenever he takes his wife anywhere, because she's evidently beautiful, he constantly lies and runs around and tells everyone it's his sister because he's afraid he's going to get killed by a nomadic tribe and his wife's going to be stolen. This is not exactly kingdom material yet, right? He doesn't believe God, and he lies a lot. God is going to bring salvation to the world through this man, through his son, through his progeny, and he wants a better mediator. He wants Abraham to be a better human being because Abraham's maturity mattered to God and to his kingdom. And that hasn't changed. Our maturity matters to God and to his kingdom. And surrender that leads to obedience and maturity are part of that process. Here we have a great example of God trying to change Abraham with this test. We see other examples of this. In the Old Testament, the one that comes to mind the most is the book of Job. 
God allowed great difficulty in Job's life. Job eventually saw God as involved in the process of refining his character. And in Job 23, after he's kind of had a tough time, Job says this, when he has tried me, when God has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. In other words, Job recognized his life was sort of in a time of refining, like gold being heated up so the impurities come to the surface. We have these examples, Abraham, Job, many others, which we'll be talking about in coming weeks. We also have some teaching sections about this in the Bible. Romans 8.28, in the context of suffering, the end result of suffering is we're going to be like Christ, conformed to the image of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says, that God's goal for you and me is to make us like Jesus, to conform us, to sort of press us into the mold of Christ's character. James chapter 1, you probably heard these verses. The context is trials. The end result, he says we're supposed to be joyful in trials because they lead to what? This testing leads to perseverance in our faith, which leads to maturity, which leads to the word Paul, uh, James uses is completeness, and then he defines it, not lacking anything. In other words, difficulty gets us to a point where spiritually we don't lack anything, but we don't get there without difficulty. Now, you and I may not care to experience God's goal for us, you know? I've said this often, I'd rather be a little less mature and have a little better life. But God's goal is maturity. And the last I checked, he's a sovereign God and he can use a lot of different things to get us there. God is invested in our surrender and maturity. Second, a greater surrender and maturity leads to greater usefulness. That is the logical next conclusion. That God can use us more when he gets our character formed the way he wants it to be formed. When we come to faith in Christ, I often say it involves three concepts. There's sort of three aspects to faith. And you really can't be a Christian without these three things sort of coming together at the same time. And we would call that a point of faith, when you really decide to follow Jesus. But there's sort of three aspects to that faith. One of them is you have to give intellectual assent. Faith is intellectual assent that Jesus is the Son of God. Can't be a Christian unless you buy into that one. If you believe, yeah, he's a good guy, wasn't bad as a teacher, this whole miracle thing, not so sure, maybe they exaggerated a little bit. No, that doesn't work. Can't be a Christian. I mean, you can go to church, you can do some good stuff, but you're not believing in a supernatural son of God, you can't be a Christian. So you do need to believe that Jesus is the son of God. Give an intellectual assent to that. You also need to trust that what Jesus did when he died on a cross, what Jesus did there was he paid the penalty for your sins and for the sins of humanity. In other words, his sacrifice paid the penalty for your sins. You need to trust in his atoning sacrifice. We're trusting in Jesus as our savior. That happened on the cross when he paid for our sins. He did it, so you don't have to die for your sins. So he's a substitute for us. He took our penalty. He took our sentence upon himself. You need to believe that to be a Christian. It's how we get forgiveness of sins. The third thing, that he's in charge, that he's Lord. We don't just say to Jesus, oh, I believe you're the son of God, and thank you for dying on the cross, and you know, I'd like to just kind of check those off, but I still own my own life and future, and I can do whatever I want. No, when our hearts are transformed by God, when we come to faith in Christ, we're also saying, 
You're driving. You're the pilot. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to act that way right away. God changes us over the rest of our lives, and we're never perfect. But the reality is you are signing up to put somebody else in the driver's seat, to use John Ortberg's illustration, and you're now in the passenger seat. You don't get salvation without acknowledging Jesus is God. He's Lord. Genesis 22 is about this trust and surrender aspect that God is building in Abraham. He's building in the lordship piece. And finally, finally Abraham is getting there because obedience is sort of surrender's sister. If you get Abraham surrendered, now he's going to obey more. He's finally going to be where God wants him. We are God's instruments on earth. We need to reflect his brand, his ethics, his values. So God's trying to get us there too. Imagine, imagine an army without any discipline, where nobody believes they have to follow orders. You know, the general comes and he lays out the battle plan, and he says, this is what we're going to do, and every private in the army says, yeah, you know, I know you got a little more experience, but I don't really want to do that. I think, I think I'm going to, I'm going to just sit this one out. You say, that's not an army. Nobody can function that way. Imagine a sports team where what the coach says doesn't matter. Actually, you don't have to imagine that. That was the Green Bay Packers under Aaron Rodgers. Football season is coming. It's time for football illustrations. You know, I was so, I'm a Packer fan. I love the Packers. God, Packers, no, God, family, Packers. But I was so tired of a player on my team who kind of made the coach adjust the offense to what he wanted to do because he couldn't be coached, because he was above it. And now we've got a young guy named Jordan Love, and I don't even care if he's as good, because he is now doing what the coach says. God calls the plays. If you're on God's team, God calls the plays. Greater surrender and maturity leads to greater usefulness. God can't expand his kingdom if we're all privates saying, you're the general, but I really don't want to obey this one, or you're the coach, but I'm going to sit out this play. God is creating usefulness in us by changing our character. Third, God uses multiple situations to create surrender and maturity. All right, so God tested Abraham. It's very clear, God set that one up start to finish. God's not trying to wiggle out of it. I mean, some of us explaining this to somebody who might not be a person of faith looking at Genesis 22, we might want to make excuses for God, but God did this. God set this one up. It's pretty tough. Go sacrifice your son, your only son. I mean, that's a hard one to explain. Tough. But God uses all kinds of situations in life that lead to surrender and maturity. They're varied and, and I would say there's five primary ones that God uses. Number one, the fallen world that we live in. So we are victims, you rarely hear those words come out of my mouth. We are victims of the historic sin of Adam and Eve. We are. We weren't there. Now, it doesn't mean you would have done anything different, you know. One woman on the planet, she eats of the fruit and she's going to leave the garden. What are you going to do, guys? You're going to do whatever she did. One woman on the planet. So they made a choice, and we all live with that choice. It broke our world. 
It's why we have disease. It's why we have brokenness in the human family. It's why we have, that everyone comes into the family, the human family is a sinner. It's why we have war. It's why the earth is broken. It's why the earth isn't at peace itself. It's why nature is broken and will one day be restored. We live in a fallen world, which means a lot of bad stuff happens, which is the disease path every one of us will go through that leads to death is a part of that. And whenever we start going through that, those are great trials in our lives. And many of, them are, many of you are going through them. As you start having a disease path that you know is going to ultimately take your life, it's a big deal. God uses those things to sort of mold us and shape us and cause us to trust in him. The fallen world, personal sin. Sometimes we suffer the results and the consequences of our own not-so-smart choices, you know? And we can hardly blame God for that, but sometimes God uses those things as he disciplines us to change us. Sometimes it's the sins of others. We suffer the results or the consequences of others' choices, but God uses them to shape us. Satan is a factor here, a personal agent of evil along with other demonic forces that the Bible clearly talks about that oppose God's kingdom and God's influence in the world. He's actively working against God. That also can cause problems for us. And there are times where God will orchestrate a test himself. Now, I would say when difficulty comes into our life that God uses to shape our character, it's usually fallen world, personal sin, sins of others, or Satan. But I wouldn't put Satan high on that list. I'd say it's his domain, but I don't think necessarily you're getting Satan's attention that often or that I'm getting Satan's attention that often. It's usually a fallen world, personal sin, sins of others, maybe Satan, and maybe God. But God isn't usually coming to you and saying, sacrifice your son. You know, God, to me, is typically not at the forefront of these tests, but he uses all these other ones in his sovereignty to test us. God has lots of tools. He uses all of them to create surrender and maturity. He's trying to use all the things in life to do that. And finally, surrender is actually giving in to your best possible life. You know, when you hear the word surrender, you don't really like it, do you? I don't. Never surrender! You know, I mean, sorry. You know, surrender. Who wants to surrender? Sounds like giving up, quitting, like I'm letting myself get pinned. You know, my son used to say, nobody gets pinned. You choose to let your shoulder get pinned because of the pain you're enduring. You know, nobody, you, you voluntarily do it. Surrender just sounds like weakness. It sounds like losing. But it's not with God. Forgive this Civil War illustration, but I was there, so I'm going to talk about it. After a long night and day of marching, General Lee and the exhausted Army of Northern Virginia made camp just east of Appomattox Courthouse on April 8th. Lieutenant General Ulysses S. Grant had sent him a letter on the night of April 7th following confrontations between their troops at Cumberland Church and Farmville suggesting that Lee, the South, surrender. The Southern general refused. Grant replied, again suggesting surrender to end the bloodshed. Lee responded, saying in part, I don't think the emergency has arisen to call for the surrender of this army, though he offered to meet Grant at 10 the next morning between picket lines to discuss a peaceful outcome to the Civil War. Having watched the battle through binoculars, Lee then said, then there is nothing left for me to do but go and see General Grant, and I would rather die a thousand deaths than do that. But meeting General Grant at the McLean House, Lee said, we are pressed and ready to surrender. What are your terms? This is the point. 
it wasn't judgment. They weren't going to arrest southern soldiers. It wasn't prison. It wasn't retribution or revenge. The terms were to stop fighting and start living. Just stop fighting and start living. Give up your weapons, go home, and plant your fields. Just stop fighting. The soldiers who hadn't eaten in days were given meal rations right away, horses and mules to plow their fields. They were supplied by their conquerors so they could get on with life. The war was over, but for many people, life had just begun. When you give in to God, in whatever he's trying to break down in your life, areas where you resist him, areas where I resist him, when we give in, when we surrender, we're not losing. We're getting our best life for the first time. You're getting your best life. Life begins when we're giving into God in more and more areas because we are living the way he wants us to live. No matter what the outcomes, if we're living the way God wants us to live, it is by definition the best life we can possibly create for ourselves when we're surrendered. The front of the stage, and if if you've got a prayer request for yourself or a friend or a family member, we'd love for you to take advantage of this time to come and be prayed for, and uh, we'll do that as we're singing our last song. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. And this is a, this is a hard story. For those of us who grew up in faith, we're kind of used to it. It doesn't shock us like it maybe would somebody reading it the first time. But that was quite a request you made of Abraham. But thank you for this example of how over this number of years you, you changed his character. You put him to the test and, and he passed. And I pray that in each one of our lives, whether it's living in a fallen world or our own sins or the sins of others or Satan or whether it's you orchestrating a test or you using those other tests and trials, we want you to give us the best life possible. We know that that only comes when we surrender more ground, more territory in our lives to you, where you start controlling more, more aspects, more arenas of our behavior. I pray that you would help each one of us to get there by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.